All right, so we talk about Advent. We see this Advent season. We light Advent candles, and we want to know, like, what's going on with the Advent. What does Advent even mean? Well, we've discussed it. It means that it is a coming or arrival of a person or event, something important that is coming ahead. And today we focus on the Advent of love, and we know that the Advent of love, we know that love is God and God is love. In 1 John 4, 8, we read that God is love. So we want to go ahead and then define what love is. Because this term is used so broadly in the world today. Love is used to cover a multitude of things. Love is used between people that don't love each other. And love is thrown around in some ways. So we want to go to the, to the Bible to get a biblical context of what love is. So we'll start in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew Bible, there are multiple words for love, but two of them uh, get the most use. Okay? The first one is ahava, ahava. It is this most common one that is between two people. It's between a person that could be brotherly love, it could be between two people that means like romantic love, but it also speaks most clearly to God's interactions with his people, God's love of his people. We see it in Deuteronomy 6.5 when the people are called to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. That's the word, that love there is this ahava. We're see, we see it again in Proverbs 15, in verse 17. I love this verse. It says, better is a dinner of herbs where ahava is, where love is, than a fatted ox with hatred in it. So it speaks to this idea that it's better to have nothing and have love than to have everything and be without it. You know that there's times in your life where you've felt more love or less love. You may have plenty and less love, and you just do not feel satisfied. So in the same way, we have a satisfaction when we have love in our lives. The second word in the Old Testament we get is chesed, which is often translated loving kindness or steadfast love or mercy. And we will see that the word mercy and the word love go together hand in hand in Scripture almost every time. It is used to describe a deep and loyal love. Uh, it's used very specifically in the covenantal context between God and Israel. We see in Psalm 36, 7, he says, How precious is your chesed, your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It speaks, this love speaks to the magnificence of God that the people are taking refuge in the wings of God, that he is a protector, a lover, a giver of mercy and grace, that the people can find a place of safety under the wings of God. We see it in Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love, the chesed, of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. It's so true. And for those of you that have walked with the Lord for many years of your life, you've probably felt this over and over again, that the steadfast Lord, love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. So then we go to the Greek, and there's two words specifically in the Greek 
uh, that mean love. There's a third one, but it's, it's only used when they translate the Old Testament into Greek. So we'll focus on the New Testament ones. And, and the first one is agape. Most of us know this agape word, this agape love. It comes from the word agapao, and it means this. It is the most common term for love in the New Testament. It is often used to describe God's unconditional, selfless, giving love. It's the, verse, it's the word used in John 3.16, most famous verse in the whole entire Bible. For God so agape, for he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is what Christmas is. He gave his son. The love that God gave his son is what we celebrate at Christmas. And we see in 1 John 4.8 that whoever does not agape, does not know God, for God is agape. So if you say you love but do not know God, you haven't yet known what love truly is. We know the things of love from 1 Corinthians. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard somebody's uncle stumble through this verse, right? They get up and they read this verse and the first two lines, they nail it, and then halfway through, they start, oh, um. and so I'll confess to have been one of those people to stumble through this, but love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth, that's a big one, it rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And so we know from 1 John that God is love, so you can insert God into this passage. That God is patient, God is kind, God does not envy, God does not boast, God is not proud. You can just go over and over again, and you can finish with that God never fails. He never fails. He is always there. That's why the people, we can take refuge under the wings of God, because he never fails. The fourth word, the second word in the Greek is this word phileo. Phileo is an awesome word, and it kind of shows us this brotherly love or affection towards another, but it has like deep roots in friendship. It actually is used in John 15, 19, uh, Jesus uses this word and he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you, and he used the word philo, which means friends, which comes from this phileo. So it's this friends and love, they're tied together. That you can't pull one away from the other. A, a friend is someone you share love with. And when you love someone, they should be your friend. You can't pull the two apart. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. And this, is, this becomes an interesting one here, too. And this is the one that maybe we don't want to read, as Jesus speaks in Revelation and says, those whom I love, those whom I phileo, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And it's like, well, hold on, man. Love is like holding hands and being friends and like going to the ball game and doing these things. And Jesus is like, yeah, and I discipline you and rebuke you so that you follow me. It's, it's not unlike how we as parents raise our children. We don't just let our children from the very beginning do whatever they want. 
that would be a disaster. And so God, why would he do anything different as a loving and gracious father? So he disciplines and he rebukes his people to bring them right back into path. And so he challenges them to repent, to turn from their sins. So that's what love is. So what isn't love? People today in the world use the word love. They throw it around. And one of the things that frustrates me is how we throw around the word love to cover sin. We see these bumper stickers like love wins. And if you have that bumper sticker, that's not a problem because love does win. But we have to understand what the message of love winning actually looks like. So the world today wants to say, just love one another. Forget about the sin that's in people's lives. Just love each other, and that's okay. But what happens then is that we've left out the truth part. And we've left out the part here in Revelation where he talks about repenting. See, what we want is to share the truth of Jesus. What we want is for people to know that this, this Christmas story, the story of Jesus coming to earth and living this life and going to the cross is truth and it has repercussions. It means that we are called to live a certain way because of it. We see this perfect example that Jesus gives in John chapter 8. This woman was caught in adultery and the woman was brought to Jesus. The, 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 the Jews were trying to get Jesus to stone the woman so that he would get in trouble with the Romans. It was a setup to try to get Jesus in trouble and crucified, <laughs> which Jesus would be crucified, but it was not yet his time. And so, you know, he goes through the whole thing, you know, you who have the first stone, throw it. I mean, who has the first, who's without sin, throw the stone. Go ahead. All the people leave. And then Jesus has this beautiful line to her. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This could be a misunderstood passage when you see that neither do I condemn you. Somebody could look at that and say, see, Jesus doesn't care about what her life is like. He just wants her to, to love. He says, no, no, no. This, I don't condemn you means I forgive you. Like, I forgive your sins, and now go and sin no more. That's what the cross is about. Could you imagine if the cross just meant, like, forgiveness, and then go back to what you were doing and live your life? See, God calls us to something great. He calls us to a changed life in Jesus. So we go to the cross, and we have forgiveness at the cross, and then at the cross, our life is changed forever. And it should be changed forever. We want to repent from the sins that easily entangle us and cause us to be far from God. This moment is significant because it's a balance of grace and truth and is a central aspect of Christ's ministry. He shows love and still calls the person, calls this woman to follow him in a life of repentance. Pastor Robert mentioned the incarnation last week. And I think there's no greater way to see the love of Christ than in his incarnation and then in what happens during his incarnation. So incarnation just means to become flesh. 
You've probably heard the term like reincarnation, right? If you, don't, if you haven't heard the word incarnation, reincarnation, which would mean to re-become flesh, okay? Um, the, <clears throat> the Christian Bible does not teach reincarnation. It teaches incarnation. We are incarnated once. We become flesh once. Jesus became flesh once. And it comes from John chapter 1. Uh, Robert read, read it last week, but I'm going to read it again. In the beginning was the Word. And when we read the word, word, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was made. So he is the creator of all things, Jesus. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh. This is verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So this story of Christmas, the story of the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the story of a virgin filled with the Holy Spirit and giving birth to the son of God is the story of incarnation and love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, It's love that sent Jesus to earth, and it's love that took Jesus to the cross. So this morning, I want to look back quickly, like John did, all the way back. Because I think that we can see that Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us was no accident. This morning, as we look at the incarnation of Christ, I want us to look at the eternal Christ and what he was doing and how his sovereign hand has always been at work. See, the plan for Jesus to become flesh and dwell among us, to fulfill this John 1.14, was not something that happened after the fall. God didn't see Adam and Eve in the garden and sin and then say, oh, uh, Savior, okay, okay, Jesus, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna go to earth, you know, that's not what happened. It was eternity past, God has had a plan for the salvation of his people. In in John 17, 24, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, how did he love him before the foundation of the world? And we see it in two, ver- in two uh, scripture passages here in Ephesians and 1 Peter. Paul shows us that God knew of the plan of our redemption before it ever happened, before it ever needed to be. Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world, he was already saying, I'm going to provide a way for people to know me, a way back to the Father through the Son. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan, and the plan was Jesus. So what is the plan for Jesus? And we see that in 1 Peter For you know that it was not with perishable things such as gold and silver that you were redeemed. In verse 19 it says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. For he was chosen before the creation of the world, but it was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
Jesus was the Lamb of God before he became a baby in the manger. And we see this like perfect picture, these swaddling clothes that they would swaddle the newborn lambs in, that the Lamb of God is swaddled in these same cloths. Always the Lamb. And as he enters in to this world, he comes in as a lamb, perfect and spotless and worthy of sacrifice. It's so hard sometimes. It gives me the chills even now to think that that the lamb of God, this baby Jesus, had a plan from the moment that he became flesh and dwelt among us, that the plan was the cross. The plan was salvation for mankind. If that's not love, I don't know what love is. And so he shows us this love. You know, one of my favorite attributes of God is God's creativity. And I think that the story arc of redemption that we see through the Bible is God's masterpiece when it comes to his creativity. We see meticulously woven through scripture promises and prophecy that lead to Jesus. You know, God could have just said like, you know, hey, at thir- we're gonna insert Jesus into this world as a 30-year-old Messiah. He's gonna teach, he's gonna go to the cross, die, be resurrected from the dead, and that's how people are gonna believe. But God chose to use his creation in the redemption of his creation. Like, how humbling is that? How awe-inspiring is that? That his creation plays a part in the redemption of his creation. And so he wove this through scripture. And he did it in two ways that I want to point out this morning. Through prophecies and through covenants. And the first is covenants. I'm just going to, there's multiple covenants that God makes with his people, but I just want to cover two real quick. And the first one is called the Proto-Evangelicum, okay, which is just a fancy way to say first gospel. In the garden, as, as Adam and Eve have sinned, they have now, the wages of sin is death. They are now starting to die. And God comes down and, and he's handing out curses for the sin. And he gives Adam, he gives Eve, and then he gets to the snake. He gets to the devil and he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In the midst of handing out curses in the garden after the fall of man, God offers the first gospel message, a savior that is to come. So from eternity past and from the first moments in the garden, God is looking forward to the cross. He's looking forward to the manger. He's looking forward to what Jesus would do as Savior. And then God makes a covenant with Abraham. Three main promises, a great nation, a great land, and a great seed. In Genesis 22, we see, I surely will bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring, great nation, and the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. And the offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, the land. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's the promise of the Savior. All the nations. All the nations. This is just the beginning of the Hebrew people. And he is already looking forward to the cross and how he will bless all the nations. 
This is coming on the heels of God telling Abraham to take his son Isaac up to the region of Moriah, take him up on the mountain, and you're going to offer him as a sacrifice. And then God offers a salvation. We knew God would offer a salvation. As you're reading the story for the first time, you know that God doesn't break promises, so you know he's, he's, there's something. God's going to do something here. And he provides a ram stuck in the thicket. And then we see the beautiful picture of this. See, God told Abraham to go to the region of Moriah and go up on the mountain. And then we see some 2,000 years later, Jesus, a 33-year-old Messiah, is in the region of Moriah and is crucified on a mountain. And then, in that region of Moriah, what's called Mount Moriah, is Solomon's temple. And in the temple, on that day when he is crucified, the veil of the temple is torn, and now we have a true savior, a true high priest. We no longer pray to priests. We no longer ask priests for prayers. We no longer go through these things because we now have the high priest, Jesus, the savior. We now enter into the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies enters into us. We have his spirit with us. Changes everything. And so... We see his plan woven through promises and then through prophecy. Even, even the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, is prophesied about, Isaiah 40. The virgin birth, Isaiah 7. Descendant of Judah, Genesis 49. Descendant of David, born in Bethlehem, adoration by Magi, lived in Egypt, ministry in Galilee, riding on a, riding on a donkey is prophesied. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and the, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. All of this, all of this is prophesied. And you know what they say is that <clears throat> the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies, eight of these prophecies would be like filling the state of Texas three feet deep with silver dollars, marking one silver dollar, putting a blindfolded man onto the state of Texas and him picking up that one silver dollar on the first try <laughs> for eight of the prophecies. It's impossible for a man, but it's not impossible for the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. The point is that Jesus was continually working his plan through promises and prophecy from before time began all the way through to his birth, and then he didn't stop. I love, the, I love the one about the donkey specifically because, you know, a lot of these, you got this flesh baby in a manger. He, he can't tell his parents, as like a one-year-old, it's time to flee to Egypt, mom and dad. Yeah. He doesn't talk yet. So he has no control over some of the prophecies, but he has control over the, over the donkey one. He's like, oh, I get to play a part in this one. Sweet, and he tells them, hey, go get the donkey. They're going to ask you something. You tell them this, and he gets the donkey. Like, so Jesus knew of the prophecies and was able to help fulfill some of the prophecies. It's so cool. He didn't stop being a part of the plan. It's a beautiful thing. So there are a lot of things that we can gain from looking at the incarnation. How Christ is able to sympathize with us after taking on our flesh. But from Scripture, I think that we see that the greatest of these is that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I just want to hit on this really quick. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's Philippians chapter 2. It 
talks about what is called the kenosis of Christ. This word kenosis means emptying. We find it in Philippians chapter two, verses three through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count, yourself more significant, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, that's the kenosis, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's, if you don't see love in that passage, you can come borrow my glasses. This idea of kenosis is an interesting one. It's, what it is is it's Jesus, is, it's a self-renunciation. Not an emptying himself of deity or an exchange for deity for humanity. He's still fully God in the flesh. But he, he emptied himself of some of his divine prerogatives, some of his divine privileges. He gave up heavenly glory. While on earth, he gave up the glory of the face-to-face relationship with God. He gave up his independent authority, and during his incarnation, he completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. He gave up his, some of his divine prerogatives. He set aside the voluntary display of his divine attributes and submitted himself to the will of the Spirit, guided by the Spirit. Christ took on all the essential attributes of humanity, even to the extent that he became weak fatigued, and hungry. He did it all for the cross. From his birth to his death, humility, love, and glory on display for all to see. So what is our response to this love? What is our response? Because if we read the first part that they usually don't read in 1 Corinthians, it goes on and it says, if I... If I speak in tongues or men of angels, um, uh, but do not have love, I am a, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So it talks about if I say these things, and he talks about if I do these things or if I give these things, if I do all, all the things that make me look like I'm a religious person, but I don't have love, they're all worthless. Every word of your mouth, every act of your flesh, everything that you do is worthless if you do not have love because God is love. So then what's our reaction? Three things. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you this morning that you're a sponge. And I just want you to go with it, okay? We'll get there. So there's three, there's three reactions. First is to ignore it. Ignore God's love and mercy and grace. Think that you can just do it on your own, that you can make yourself right with God on your own, or that you can just make this world happen on your own. The second is to embrace it. Embrace God's love. Love leads to worship. Love is the key 
that unlocks the heart of worship. As you draw near to God, as you embrace his love, we start to worship. You know, it's, it's funny, this word, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. This, this word worship comes from the Greek word proskuneo, which means to prostrate oneself. Like every knee will bow and every tongue, it's, it's saying that you're not enough. I can't, I can't do it. It's a, it's, a, it's a visual of worship on our face before God. The third way is to be a conduit of God's mercy and grace and love. To be a conduit. So we can ignore it, we can accept it, or we can be a conduit of it. So I want to I point this to you like a sponge. So you go on vacation, you know, and your sponge is in the window above your sink, and it's, it's summertime, and, the, and it's, just, it's just nuking this sponge. And the sponge, you come home to use the sponge, it's dry and crusty, and it's just, it's just there. It has no love or mercy inside of it. But here's the beautiful thing. The tap of God is always on. It's always on, ready to fix you. So if you feel that you have not received the love of God, the tap is on. You just got to get yourself under the water. And so once you're under the water, you become full. You're now a full sponge that's ready to be used. You are this thing that is full of God's love and God's mercy. But here's the thing. When you get into God's hand and you serve the people and you love the people, you become a conduit because a sponge that is filled with God's love and mercy in the hand of God now becomes something that is giving love and mercy to other people and to other things. I saw this on display this week. People in the hand of God giving love and mercy to other people. As we went through the road to Bethlehem, as we set up over the past couple of weeks, I got to experience and see a bunch of sponges filled with the love and the mercy of God, and then to see it on display as people drove through here. You may be here this morning because you drove through this road to Bethlehem. What you experienced, I want to tell you, is not people getting paid to do something. It's not people feeling obligated to do something. It's not people feeling like they need to do this thing to be right with God. They were being conduits of God's love and mercy to you because they love you, because our church loves you, because Jesus loves you. That's why we do what we do on Sunday morning. That's why we do what we do through the week. It's to be conduits of God's love and mercy. It's not for our own selfish ambition or gain. It's so that all men, all nations would be blessed by the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. So, if you believe that God has a plan, that he's been executing this plan from eternity past, that he entered himself into creation to make a way for you, that he took the cross as the perfect lamb of God, and he was raised from the dead because he conquered sin and death, then I want to challenge you this morning like the woman that Jesus talked to, I want to encourage you to go to the cross, seek his forgiveness, and then go and sin no more. Obviously, we struggle. We become, sometimes we're that sponge that's full, and we deplete ourselves, and we forget to get back under the love, under the tap, to be refilled by God through his word, through prayer, through people, through fellowship, through fellowship. 
So wherever you're at this morning, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, what a beautiful time, what a beautiful moment upon looking upon the manger to say for the first time in your life, Jesus, forgive me. I follow you. I repent of my sin. I'm with you. That's my challenge to you this morning if you've never made that decision. Now, if you have made that decision and you're feeling wonky after the years that we've had, then I'm challenging you to get under the tap. Be filled by God's love and mercy. And don't just be filled and put yourself back on the kitchen sink. I want you to be in the hand of God this year. I'm telling you it's a blessing. So we look to the eternity, we look to the manger, we look to the cross, we look to this present life. And then we can look to eternity with our Savior. It's his promise. We thank him for that. So Jesus is the light of the world. and We are called to be his light to the world. So this morning, we will light candles together. It's symbolic of many things, and it could be symbolic to you of more than what I even say right now. But we are saying the light of the world has come into this world. As we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus becoming light into the world. And then if you're a believer this morning, lighting this candle can be a proclamation in your own heart and in your own mind saying that I am to be the light of this world through Christ. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son. I cannot imagine sacrificing my child and what that put you through to see your son go to earth, knowing what was ahead of him. Jesus, you entered this earth as creator. You entered your creation knowing that you were the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. You let your light shine before men. And we pray, God, that we today would let our lights shine. And as we think about the light that is in us through your spirit, may you use every single piece of us. May we be molded by the potter's hand. May we be the sponge that gives grace and mercy and love to others. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know your son, Jesus, as Savior, I pray that this morning is that day. That this morning is the day that Jesus pulls them from darkness. And they give their life right now, God, to you. We know that's what you want and that's what you call all of us for. God, you're an awesome God and we thank you and we praise you. In your name, amen.